This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to the Scholarly Podcast. My name is Juliana Ferreira. I'm an Associate Professor of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Sao Paulo and a member of the podcast team here at Scholarly. Today, we'll be discussing a paper published in HS Scholar entitled A Global Survey of the Effect of COVID-19 on Critical Care Training. And we will be joined by Dr. Sarah Walster, the first author of the paper. Dr. Walster, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Would you mind introducing yourself? Absolutely. Hi, Dr. Ferreira, and thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I'm Sarah Walster. I'm a neurology-trained intensivist at the University of Washington in Seattle. Great. Uh, so I, I wanted to just jumping into the paper and start by asking you something about the, the result that I found was most interesting. So you, you, you surveyed attending uh, physicians and trainees around the globe and in the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, inquiring about their perceptions of the impact of COVID-19 on medical training. And you found that most participants, both uh, trainees and attendings, reported that COVID-19 had a negative impact on clinical education and training. But I thought it was surprising that one third of the participants reported that there was a positive impact. Was this an unexpected result for you? I have to say um, that was actually one of these results I found the most interesting as well. I'm not sure I expected it. And I would say um, the results of the survey also have to be interpreted against the timeline. And so when we submitted the survey it was early on in the pandemic, we distributed it worldwide in April, May of 20, and then in Brazil a little later, coinciding with the first peak. But this was still one of the earlier phases when there were earlier peaks. And so I think as we review the results today, there's some context in that the pandemic has been going on and that there's a lot of changes. And as we adapt, things change. I would say at the time, from my personal experience, in addition to feeling anxious and reorganizing and adapting, there was also a lot of good morale at the time. And uh, I think a lot of teamwork, a lot of determination to come together and beat this together. And I think early on the stages, we definitely saw also a lot of enthusiasm about getting together and um, Physicians were celebrated as the healthcare heroes. And whereas, yes, there was uncertainty, I think there was also a lot of positive morale and coming together that may have impacted this. I think there's also certainly something to be set for learning opportunities. And there are many surveys from other subspecialties, gastroenterology, cardiothoracic surgery, or neurosurgery that looked at their training programs, and there was a much more negative response. So whereas we had many providers or the majority providing a negative response, the proportion of providers reporting a positive response was much higher compared to these subspecialties. And that may be because there is just, in addition to the stress and the negative impacts, there's there was also some learning opportunity, such as more opportunities to perform procedures, more opportunities to practice critical care and be challenged, more experience with ECLS and ECMO. And um, I think especially for critical care, because intensivists were in high demand and had to step to the front, I think there were some opportunities for more education, more exposure. And I think that initial morale aspect may have played a role as well. Yeah, I share your, your impression that 
the the morale in the in the beginning of the pandemic made a huge difference and and you were surveying trainees in critical care right we had our fellows here in pulmonary critical care the the first year fellows were taking care of the less they were not in the icu they were in the wards and they they would come every week to me and say can we please come to the icu we want to care for the patients in the icu so I, I agree. I think uh, I think the trainees in critical care were were feeling like this was a call for us, and they felt they they could make a difference. and And I agree, they they probably learned a lot of things, other things during the pandemic. Very interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about the motivation to do this study? Uh, were instructors instructors in your hospital or your program noticing a negative impact? Did you worry about this or did fellows report a concern about a, a negative impact in education? Why, why did you think this was important? Specifically, the education part was important to me. I'm a clinician educator and very invested in our fellows' education and um, work a lot at our institution on our neurocritical care fellows' education as well as the critical care fellows' education. And so um, that was something that was a topic dear to me as in the initial stages, a lot of conferences were canceled, didactics became virtual, and there was a lot of overhaul and changes in schedules to keep providers safe. I would say the overall survey we actually sent uh, with the goal to also assess critical care resources, and then just the impact of the pandemic on the ICUs, on critical care resources, resource utilization, as well as provider well-being. And the education part was one aspect of that that was very important to me. The decision to distribute the survey was actually came in a midnight conversation with one of my collaborators, Dr. Lewis, who's also on the paper from NYU, as well as a few other colleagues internationally. I have some colleagues and friends in Europe. And in the initial stages of the pandemic, there was a lot of connecting. And while we got more separated kind of physically, I think there was also a lot of connecting globally and coming together and comparing our experiences. And so um, the decision to create that survey was uh, based on conversations with others and seeing that there's some aspects of a shared experience and trying to really assess what the needs are and what differences and common themes are worldwide. And I think that was actually one of the most gratifying parts of the aspect that we worked with many critical care societies. We're just talking about Susanna Lobo, who was a fantastic collaborator, as well as other critical care societies all over the globe. I would say um, the motivation was really hearing about the experiences from many colleagues and really wanting to assess the needs worldwide and really see what are mutual themes that unite us, what are issues and problems that are specific to regions and really get an assessment of the impact on ICUs and providers. I would say the implementation of the study was really possible thanks to the amazing group of co-authors on this papers. All of them have been fantastic colleagues and mentors that have made the pandemic and the whole experience better and easier for me. I would say in particular, Dr. Kreutzfeldt, the senior author on this paper, and Dr. Curtis were two fantastic, phenomenal mentors that have encouraged me to do this, have given me a lot of guidance, and have really helped me realize the study and implement it and um, structure it in a way that captures all the relevant points. But I would say all co-authors were phenomenal in giving input, and each of them played a big part in making this happen and really getting it done. And then I would say the numerous healthcare providers across the world who took the time to take the study while being faced with a pandemic and working in an ICU um, and learning about their experiences uh, was very inspiring. 
Great, and and you you mentioned it briefly, but so that um, our our listeners can can know a little bit more about this. So the study was not only about education, right? You were also looking at other other important outcomes that are published elsewhere. Can you comment a little bit about this? Sure. Yes. So as mentioned before, it was a overall kind of global assessment on the impact of the pandemic on. ICUs, critical care resources, resource utilization, as well as provider well-being. And one of the most interesting parts of the survey, and I think an ongoing theme in this pandemic, is the provider well-being, as well as how provider well-being is connected to critical care resources and lack of resources. In our global study, we found that the rate of burnouts were high. And one of my collaborators, Dr. Sharma, uh, she actually conducted a um, study within the U.S. looking at the relationship of critical care resources and well-being and found that there was a strong connection between a lack of PPE or perceived lack of PPE and provider distress. Something we found on the more global scale is that specifically nurses, female providers were at high risk for burnout and that there were some connections between resources and provider well-being. However, North America is the region with the most reported or perceived resources, actually also had the highest rate of concerns. We're doing some sub-analysis right now of different regions, actually, and finding that there are different regional patterns in how provider distress is reported, and its associations are a little different. Going back to the results in this paper itself, you mentioned that trainees were more likely than attendings to report a reduction, a perceived reduction in informal didactics, less supervision, and a perception that they had to make decisions that exceeded their level of competence. Why do you think there is this difference in perception uh, comparing the trainees with the attendings? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And I think that was one of the key goals in our study to really compare the perceptions and see if there's any differences and if there might be communication gaps or just gaps in realizing what the experience is. I think, I mean, overall, the trainee concerns, the trainees were much more likely to report concerns of decreased didactics, uh, supervision, procedures, reassignment. And I think that just might reflect that attendings might not be as aware of it. One factor that particularly differed was reassignment. So whereas reassignment was noticed as commonly or even more frequently in attendings, it seemed to matter much more to trainees or attendings didn't seem to perceive it as a factor impacting training, whereas it was significantly associated with reporting a negative impact on education for trainees. Conversely, for attendings, lack of resources seemed to play a role. For example, fewer bronchoscopy, lack of ICU beds. And so that was an interesting finding. And it might be that attendings that felt the lack of resources felt that they had less time devoted to teaching or felt under more pressure and perceived that as a negative impact on teaching. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. I, I, as, a, as a supervisor, I was always concerned that this, I mean, there's a sense of responsibility, right? So if, if, if you feel like there are not maybe enough PPE for everyone, I think that kind of dominates your impressions during that time. Absolutely. I would agree with that. So among, among the trainees, this impression that there was a negative impact on clinical education was associated, as we just talked, with a reduction of formal didactics, uh, an increase in reassignments and less supervision. But as, as you said, the bronchoscopy and the reduction in procedure and bronchoscopy was a big thing for attendings. Can you comment on this on this particular difference, looking at procedures during the pandemic? 
Yeah, sure. Absolutely. That's an excellent question. And it's interesting because more trainees reported a lack of procedures or are getting fewer procedures, but it was the connection or an association between reporting fewer procedures and perceiving a negative impact on education was stronger for attendings. And then again, attendings for attendings, a lack of a fewer bronchoscopies also went along with a different impact of training. And I think some of that might be just a matter of perspective, right? For, for attendings might have that kind of view from, you know, more experience and might be more worried about that, whereas trainees are a little bit, you know, coming out of school and university, a little bit more focused on the formal didactics aspect and the training. Some of it comes with a grain of salt that um, we had fewer trainees in the analyses. So some of the association we detected for attendings may have not been captured due to the lower N and not having had the power to detect this change. But I think it's quite interesting that there is a little bit of difference in perception and trainee reassignments, for example, or the didactics were so much more heavily weighted for trainees. Whereas for attendings, it was a little bit more kind of having resources, which I think might just have heightened someone's stress. Uh, or again, attendings that had fewer resources might have been busier and might have felt that they didn't have as much time to devote to teaching. And then I think specifically this procedural aspect may have just been more recognized by attendings compared to the trainees. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I wanted to ask you, how I don't know how different this was in... Well, I, I, I'm in Brazil, right? And part of your uh, sample is in Brazil, but all of this, all of the, the survey was distributed in the beginning of the pandemic and here in Sao Paulo in particular, and I think everywhere else, in the very beginning, we were a little concerned about, for example, doing bronchoscopy, unless I'm in the ICU, I mean, like doing a bronco alveolar lavage, unless we had a very strong uh, reason to do so because we were a little, we, we still didn't know if this was going to be very contagious to the to other healthcare workers. So in the beginning of the pandemic, at that time that you, that you surveyed your participants, we didn't, we only did bronchoscopy in the ICU if we really needed. And when we did, usually a trainee would not be together in the patient room with the whoever more experienced was doing the bronchoscopy, but that changed a little bit over the pandemic. So sorry for a long explanation, just to ask you if this, do you think this was the same in your hospital or possibly in the other sites where you surveyed that the reduction in, in procedures was strongest in this beginning of the pandemic. And then as, as we got more experience with COVID, we realized we had to do it for to take better care of patients and also to teach trainees. I would agree with you. I had a very similar experience personally at our institution. Prior to the pandemic, we were a very high volume bronchoscopy place. And this was thanks to some of our excellent bronchoscopy techs. And there was a lot of opportunity for our trainees to perform and learn bronchoscopy. And we would do it quite frequently. And then with the pandemic, I think initially due to safety reasons, the number was diminished very much. And then if so, we would, as you delineated, carefully think whether this was really necessary. We would want testing. I think we'd also want to save PPEs and, as you said, protected trainees. So I think very initially, I would say there was a sharp decline in bronchoscopies. And I think now with improved testing, more vaccinations, and I think all of us kind of having adapted to the pandemic, I think the number has picked back up. That would be kind of my personal observation. And I can see how many places likely reacted and you know, initially really limited the number of bronchoscopies just to prevent any transmission. 
there is another recent survey of program directors that came out in ATS Scholar that also looked at this. And I think about 50% of the program directors observed decreased overall bronchoscopies. Um, but there was also a number, I think something along the line of 20% or so that reported increased bronchoscopies. So I think, as you said, I think over the course of pandemic, that really may have changed. But I can see how our survey, it was probably the results reflect an early picture of just cutting back and just trying to be on the safe side. Yes, that makes sense. One one thing we had here in Sao Paulo also was uh, residents, not the fellows, but residents very worried that they would not learn how to intubate because previous to the pandemic, they would they would be the ones who were intubating most of the patients with a supervision or at least the cases we didn't think were going to be very complicated. And then during the pandemic, for, for safety reasons for us and also for the patient, we we had the recommendation to to have the most experienced person do intubations. How how do you see this, and how is this uh, happening now in your institution? I think again, as you delineated, I think initially there was this immediate reflex to want to protect the trainees and to um, uh, really have attendings take over these procedures, minimize the amount of providers that do them, and really err on the side of protecting trainees. And I remember the initial. April, May month uh, for us that were our initial peak, many trainees were reassigned, um, but then also many trainees on non-essential rotations were also freed up and there was a lot of cancellation of outpatient clinics. And so there was definitely that concern that trainees just weren't getting any training or not enough training or not enough exposure. There was definitely a lot of trainees um, that also had health concerns. I think initially, as we also were learning about the virus, you know, there's always someone that has an elderly they live with or concerns about pregnancy, immunosuppression or other things. Um, so I think initially there was definitely a move to really diminish this exposure. And I think I would say at least at our institutions and speaking to colleagues in other institutions, I think the intubation part has really picked up from speaking to our anesthesia residents, they're back to intubating as they were before. But I think in the initial period, there were some modifications. And also the non-essential um, surgeries were canceled. And so I think that resulted in fewer intubations for anesthesia trainees. But I think that has picked up again. And I think we have adjusted. And I think especially with many of our physicians and healthcare workers being vaccinated and more rigorous and frequent testing and rapid testing of patients, I think that has thankfully uh, returned or uh, you know has recovered, I would say. Yeah, I agree. At, uh, like now going in a little bit of a different uh, direction, you you mentioned and you show it in your tables that none of the baseline characteristics or the program or the experience, time of experience as a trainee or as, a, as an attended predicted the, perce the perception of a negative impact. Was this unexpected to you? I mean, did you hypothesize that, I don't know, more experienced physicians would see this as a higher, as a, a worse impact or for the trainees. I, I'm, I'm curious about what you expected and if these results were in, a, in an opposite direction. Yes, I do think it was a little unexpected. We did hypothesize that these factors would matter. And that's why we included them in the multivariate model. And um, similarly, we looked at the ICU resources and we thought that, you know, having a big lack of resources would really have a big impact. And in a separate analysis that's shown in a supplement, but that's not featured in the paper, we also looked at burnout or fears of getting sick or fears of getting your family sick and things like that impacting the whole experience. Because we felt that in a way, 
you know, all the emotional stresses are connected to your overall experience and would be important factors. And we were a little surprised to see that there were not as many associations with lack of resources or years in training. So I would have thought that that would have mattered. The other factor I thought or hypothesized would matter would be the number of COVID patients seen. And so, yeah, I, I was surprised and it was a little bit unexpected. And then you hinted at the positive findings initially. So we also ran analyses on seeing if there were any factors associated with positive findings, because that was really an interesting finding to me. And we did not find any associations. I think that may have been because of the way the survey was asked. You know, we structured the survey asking about lack of things and um, insufficiencies and problems. And so I think we may not have looked for the factors that may have made the experience more positive. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You showed that you had a, a low response rate in some areas or some countries uh, when you're comparing attendee, attendings and trainees. How much do you think this impacts the interpretation of your results as in terms of being a global picture of what happened in those programs? I think it does matter. I think, unfortunately, um, lower resource countries initially were underrepresented in the global survey. And I think that's for several reasons. I think, first of all, it was not as easy to find contacts. And even in areas where we had personal contacts, it was harder to just disseminate it electronically and get folks to fill it out. I would say that at the time when we disseminated the surveys, the pandemic hadn't hit as much in those areas. There was a rising concern. Um, and when we tried to collect the data, we tried to really... We sent it out to the World Federation of Intensive Care Societies. We really tried to target any country. But I would say that, and maybe it's because those countries were affected, and partially it was also having more contacts in some countries, especially in the US, Europe, and Brazil. But I would say um, our highest responders were actually the countries that had the highest COVID numbers and the highest COVID deaths. So USA and Brazil were our two top responders. And then we also had high response in India and some of the European countries that were very affected. Um, so I think in a way... I thought it was unfortunate that some countries were underrepresented, and I would have really liked to know more about what happened in those countries and what their experience was. But I think it was, it was a good finding, or um, I think the countries that were so affected were very represented. And so I think I was glad that we were able to capture that. Yes, it's a it's a very impressive how how broadly you were able to distribute, and I I should tell you that I'm a participant in your study <laughs> because oh, I did answer that survey. <laughs> in that case, thank you very much for taking the time because I know it was a very busy <laughs> time in which we had many other things to do than answering surveys. So thank you for taking the time and doing that. Sure, my pleasure. It's great to see it published. I ha I have two more questions that related to how do we. Uh, put these results into the bigger picture. Um, and you, you kind of mentioned a little bit already that there were a potential for increased learning opportunities in the ICU environment, in the pandemic. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? What were, uh, again, good things that happened in terms of education, considering that we were all, and I mean, dragged into the pandemic and trying to do our best? Yeah. I think that's a great question. And um, I would say it's always important to try to find the silver linings. And I think in anything that happens as terrible as it, as it is, see the good opportunities. And um, I think in a way, in trying to make the best of the situation, I think we have all learned a lot. And in trying to see the positive, uh, I think all of us have grown tremendously as intensivists and learned from each other. We've learned about this disease. 
we've learned about restructuring ICUs and we've learned about reacting to a disaster and global catastrophe like that. And hopefully some of the lessons learned would be useful in other scenarios where there's suddenly a high need for ICU patients in terms of how you restructure your ICUs, keep your staff safe. So I think there's a lot of lessons learned from an organizational standpoint. And it's important that we assess these and reassess these and really try to take something away from it and grow as humans, as physicians, and as a society. I think in terms of learning opportunities for trainees, I think specifically in the ICU, because of the higher volume, the higher demand, the higher workload, we all had to rise to the challenge and just through clinical experience grew a lot. I think working together and learning to be collegial and work as a team and look out for each other has been a very important aspect of growing as a physician and person. I would say that there's been an increased volume in seeing cases of ARDS. And I think in many places, increased experience with ECMO. And I've heard from many collaborators and colleagues worldwide in lower resource areas or areas where they didn't use it, that there was an increased use of you know, ECMO. I think proning became much more commonplace, whereas it was routinely done in ARDS patients. I think with the increase in COVID patients, it became something our nursing staff or physicians became much more familiar, comfortable with, and have used much more. And so I think there's a lot of day-to-day learning opportunity, but I think overall the big picture will matter. I think something that is very important in shaping the experience going forward is keeping up the morale. And as we go through the pandemic, I think we have to always adapt to new challenges. I think something that's also been emphasized more in many places or with many colleagues I've talked to is bedside teaching. I think as didactics were made virtual and kind of changed and the format of teaching changed and there were less opportunities to meet in person, I think a lot of emphasis on bedside teaching and explicit learning and learning while you take care of the patient is important to really make training and education better. And then I would say, and this is actually a reviewer comment on this paper that I got that I found very insightful, is I think there's always the experience in the now where we report something as negative and positive. And in that moment, you know, we suffer or we're in a bad mood or we perceive it as a bad thing. But I think sometimes, you know, a survey shows the perception, but I think there are also, you know, I wonder how people would reflect now, a year later, or even five or 10 years later. And the reviewer comment I got was specifically the reviewer talking about his experience in the uh, initial stages of AIDS and how they felt and how reflecting on it years later uh, was very different. So that'll be interesting to see. Yeah, that's that's a great comment. And I, I couldn't agree more about the, I mean, all the growth that all of us, trainees and attendings and everyone in the hospital, how much we learned about uh, being there for each other and 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 trying to do the best for patients who were in a in a very delicate situation with no family. I think this generation of physicians is has the potential to be an amazing generation of physicians. They they learn so much, but some of it I agree will will take a little bit of time to so they realize wow how much I learned about crisis management and working and being flexible. Uh, that's very important. My last question is, and you mentioned this on your paper, if new surges occur, and they are occurring now in in several parts of the world, and and still a little bit in some parts of Brazil, in some areas in the US, what can we do to make it better in terms of education? What can we do now to make sure that we get as much positive impact of the pandemic as possible for our trainees? I think the first important part and trying to do better and preserve, improve 
and further augment education as we continue to go through the pandemic and beyond is to just pay attention to it and talk about it as we are doing now. And um, I think that's why it's important to do this research, reassess this, um, assess the impact and, and get data on it, discuss it. And um, that's why it's important to have studies like this and other studies published about this topic. I think just maintaining the conversation and maintaining um, the focus and prioritizing education throughout all of this. Whereas initially, I think it was a little sidetracked by concerns about safety and just as youth being overwhelmed, I think it's important to just continue to prioritize education. Thankfully, since the study, many have been vaccinated, again, with improved testing and healthcare provider vaccinations and restructuring, um, there has been a return to didactics. And I think didactics have also evolved in that many have become virtual. And I think next steps would be to assess how in-person didactics, virtual didactics, or hybrid models um, impact the experience. I would say I've heard from trainees that some don't like virtual didactics. I've heard from lecturers that they don't like doing it virtually because there's less interaction. And so I think there's something to be said for the preservation of in-person didactics. I think, however, with virtual didactics, there's a lot more opportunities. And in a way, we've expanded our didactic net and we're getting a lot of grand rounds from national and international speakers that couldn't visit as easily. And I've actually teamed up with a group of female neurointensivists and we have shared didactics at each other's institutions with each other. So I think in a way, whereas there were initially less opportunities for didactics, I think the whole uh, increase in virtual conferences also gives an opportunity to get access to didactics for trainees and really collaborate between institutions. And I think that's something that we can build that is obviously, hopefully a positive effect. I think in how we can do better in the future is I think really, again, paying attention to these issues really I think another finding that our study highlights that it's helpful is really that there are differences in perception between uh, the teachers and the trainees and really trying to, from both sides, or I think especially on the teacher side, pay attention to, you know, what are the perceptions of your trainees and what is their experience and really paying attention to that. And then I think, again, as the pandemic progresses, I think really keeping up morale and the well-being of these trainees and the personal connection with these trainees as we guide and mentor them to the training and really paying attention to that will be key. Yeah, that's great. Dr. Walter, it was amazing having you here at Scholarly today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation, Juliana. It's a great pleasure talking to you. And this is really an interesting topic and um, yeah, some great questions that really, I think, you know, um, will be important for the future of our trainees and preserving their experience. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Scholarly. If you liked this episode, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To listen to more episodes and see notes from today's discussion, you can visit our webpage at atsjournals.org slash scholarly. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.